Hello, everyone. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, we've seen humanity undergo transformational shifts that are so impactful they've they've been. Uh, da, da. There we go. That's an example. Hello, everyone. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, we've seen humanity undergo transformational shifts that are so impactful they define themselves into entire ages. Just recently, you've lived through the information age, and what an incredible journey it's been. Now think about this. You could, we could very well be in the midst of another monumental shift, the transition into the age of infinite. We're talking about an age that transcends the concepts of scarcity and abundance. It introduces a lifestyle rich with infinite possibilities, enabled by a new paradigm shift that links the moon and the earth into the term we call mirth, moon and earth. This synergy will create a new ecosystem and economic model, propelling us into an era of infinite possibilities. Sounds like a plot for an extra, extraordinary sci-fi film, doesn't it? But this is a story that we will see unfold in your lifetime. This podcast was brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut. We happen to be named by NASA through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, and then to turn the innovations and the paradigm-shifting thinking from the endeavor back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Now, if you're interested, you go to our website, www.projectmoonhut.org, where you can check out some of the really neat uh, new ads to the website that just went up, but you could check out the 40-year plan, our work, and we just added on the Project Moon Hut classification system. So that's under the 40-year plan. Really, really cool. So now let's dive into today's podcast. The title is From Orbit to Impact, Earth's New Era. And today we have an amazing guest on the line. Lisa and I have spent a decent amount of time together already. Name's Lisa Rich. How are you, Lisa? I'm great. Thank you for having me, David. Well, I'm very excited. And I here's their short bio. We always do a very brief bio of every individual. Lisa is the fa founder and COO of Explore, a service company using a high-caliber multi-sensor platform to store and transmit data, achieve data fusion, and on-orbit processing. Also, as a VC, she's invested in 37 commercial space and frontier technology companies. She, enters the, she entered the space industry in 2014 to impact the environment, education, and United States security interest, along with to be a part of the growing economy. Now, before we begin, and we didn't add these in the first interviews, Lisa and I have not reviewed a single bit of what she's going to speak about today. We are learning this together. So Lisa's been on a journey to figure out what we're going to talk about. This is the first time I'm going to hear the outline. First time we're going to be talking about the content. So Lisa, do you have an outline or bullet point series for us to follow? Yes, I do. We're going to start with point one, which will be influences. Okay. Influences. Number two. Two is investing in the future. In the future. Number three. Three is science missions today versus tomorrow. Today versus tomorrow. Next. Point four is transition from government to commercial. 
government to commercial next creating value from satellites from satellites next infinite streams of proprietary data proprietary data next this will be the last one which is every company is a space company and i know you're going to complain about that but that no is no i'm not not going to complain uh <laughs> people who've heard the <laughs> interviews understand uh there's no complaint there's just clarity okay. so let's start with number one influences yes so a lot of people ask me, how did I get into the space industry? How did I become an investor in advanced technologies? And it really began at the earliest juncture with two books that changed my life, um, uh, which would be the uh, being, On Being Digital by Nicholas Negroponte. And this was a book talking about the age of the internet and what the promise of the internet was and all of that interconnectivity that was going to be changing our lives and certainly changed mine. And then the singularity is near with Ray Kurzweil, uh, who is, you, you talked about, you know, abundance, but maybe we'll, we'll talk about the on being digital first, because I think that's. No, I, I think we should. And, and I've worked with Ray. Great. And, uh, and I will share with you, excuse me. <laughs> and Peter Diamandis, who really has espoused uh, all of the great uh, ideas that Ray has had and really helped so many people understand. Uh, How was he doing? Is he still, he wanted to live forever? Peter Diamandis? No, no, uh, Ray. How is Ray doing? Well, I know that he was at uh, an event that Peter had uh, 20. I, I saw him at one of Peter's singularity events, probably 2019. And uh, but I haven't followed since. You know, he was a lot. All the inventions he had created uh, were part of this whole purpose. He wanted to reach the singularity so that he could last forever or have. Yes. A long term he's 75 yes and new york new york uh so he's still he's still kicking so that's good yeah so all of these things uh, the book on being digital was a great influencer because at that point in time we were on mosaic we were working on these early you know yeah. uh, uh search engines google didn't exist yet and yet we're reading this book saying at some point you're going to have video on the web or on your phone. You're going to have tickets that you can buy on, on the airplane tickets on the web. Uh, even in-flight Wi-Fi was probably predicted in that book. And you read it and you thought, how? How is the future going to be like this? And I don't even know what I'm going to do when it becomes this way. I'm going to be so excited. And so I wanted to be a part of that future and um, got a master's in and foc focusing on internet communications back in after uh, undergrad because I knew that the internet was changing everything and wanted my first businesses to be 
web-based businesses are involving the internet. And so I was involved in, in so creating- That was, I'm reading it, 1996. Yeah, 96, right. So I was right out of um, grad school going to work at the ad agencies to transition brick and mortar uh, businesses to digital strategies for the websites for the Did business. you study advertising? Is that what you studied? Yeah, advertising and internet commerce. At the IIT in Chicago, Illinois Institute of Technology. Yeah. And so um, the websites were just trying to tra- transition, you know, what was a brochure or a, or a brick and mortar business? How did you now relate to an audience on this thing called the World Wide Web? And understanding that that footprint that was being created of a web page reaching unlimited people was an extraordinary concept for me that like the power of technology, like right at your fingertips, it was this ultimate um, level of inspiration for me. And I ended up um, going into um, digital technology with my partner and we built a website that's um, one of the largest sites on the web. And uh, what site was that? uh, Brainyquote.com. Oh, okay has had billions and billions of visitors over the years. Uh, and it's a website that's sharing, really educating, entertaining, uplifting audiences in, of all things, famous quotation. But the, the point of the site, it was utilizing public domain data and monetizing public domain data, which people didn't believe you could even, that was a thing. Um, <laughs> and it was a very complicated uh, way of, you know, not just getting information out there, but how do you expand this audience and have this huge audience? And so um, that experience of growing a website and then having it uh, one of the first to become really huge and monetized and reaching all of these people, it it evolved into a great, um, you know, Financially, it was a great thing. And then it allowed me to look at the investment opportunity of how can I now become an investor in advanced technologies because um, I want to be even more of a part of the future, like having a website. Okay, that's great. But how do I move humanity forward with other skill sets that I have that I know I'm capable of applying, right? So I started learning about people involved in um, accelerators that were finding the smartest and brightest technologists, um, in particular, Sean O'Sullivan, who founded SOS Ventures. He um, created accelerators around the world to really um, find great people that were building businesses, wanted to build businesses, and he wanted to support that. And so I was learning from gr- brilliant people that were going to these accelerators to start businesses. And this was at a time when um, lab space was scaling in terms of price and size. So this idea of accessibility was for creating new things for uh, R&D. It was a transformative time, not just because of the internet, but because of technology scaling. So 
you could see that a, a lab was literally renting space by the foot and you could get smart people in there that could do R&D renting lab space. You didn't have to be a Merck Pharmaceuticals or a big you know, pharma company or a big, um, can't think of other, other organizations, but where you would have to have 500 people working on a single project. You could put a small team of people together that were smart researchers in a lab working on some business idea and in an accelerator program at the end of 12 weeks, come out with prototypes or a thesis and an idea that could be the foundation of a future business. So this in particular, I was looking at uh, synthetic biology, um, mm -hmm. looking at um, cellular agriculture, protein design, future of food technologies, uh, robotics, drones, and the space industry, as we know it as the space technology, looking at satellites and, and things that are going to uh, fly above Earth or so from an advertising background, mm -hmm. you went into all of these other areas, right? Because my my skill set is really being able to drill down from a larger view to like loving the the deep dive with the scientists where they can share all of these all of these um, specific ideas and they're, they're, uh, they're specialists, you know, but I would love to get into the language of what a, a scientist is working on and start absorbing that like a sponge and then mm -hmm. stepping back from it and saying, what did I learn? Cause I'm not going to become some specialist in, you know, a person that's been studying yeast for 20 years or somebody that's studying propulsion for 20 years. I don't need to know all of those specifics. I'd love to hear about it. But my skill set was drawing the larger picture view from that to understand how all these dots connect with the, the, the larger systems that are at work with commerce, with investment, with how these things become part of our future. Is that you know, I, 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 no, I completely understand when I, I, similar makeup, uh, my, my mom used to say, uh, David, you're jack of all trades, master of none. And it wasn't that it was that it was a very broad set of con ideas that I was always interested. Sounds like you were, and you did go deep, but you didn't go down to the weeds you went high enough so that you could understand the concept, the utilization, the process, the, the mechanisms, the history, but you didn't go all the way down. And that gave you even more, uh, you, a factorial of knowledge base to absorb the next one. It's like an athlete. You learn one, you still learn a second sport. Well, the third sport is not as difficult because you already have muscle memory. You already have skill sets that allow you to perform. So yeah, I completely understand it. I just didn't know you started out in advertising. Which... Well, I've always really evolved in my growth of my skill sets and expanded into areas that I was passionate about. That's really how I've led my whole career that way. Um, I don't see, you know, I see a future of abundance. So I don't find that I have to pigeonhole myself and say, right. just because I had an English degree, literally an English degree as a college undergrad, um, that I should become a writer. No, right. I, I, actually that skill of language is what has yeah. allowed me to, 
to enter all of these different realms and speak to different specialists in so many different fields because I start to learn their language to communicate and then take that step back and say, okay, now what did I glean from this? And how does this apply to larger constructs that are of interest and can be useful in what way? Now, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. You said abundance. When you have abundance, it means there's scarcity. That's the yin and yang. The reason it's called the age of infinite is there's just infinite possibilities when you open up all of these doors. And that's why we use the age of infinite, because we're going to get a, 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 I don't know, logarithmic explosion of ideation that comes out of being able to use Beyond Earth or the Mirth ecosystem and all of those categories. So, yeah. Uh, that's great. So how how did so this book it this book said to you get involved, see, and then expand. How did Ray fit into this? Well, the singularity uh, is near is fascinating because it's talking about this convergence of capabilities that are being all plugged in together. So you've got synthetic biology, for example, merging with robotics, merging with, uh, so allowing for high data throughput, allow, just accelerating a capability as other platforms plug into uh, something that previously was more analog, say somebody sitting at a, at a biology uh, lab with their sets of cells and they can't really accelerate beyond the cells that are in their hands. Well, now when you roboticize that uh, and automate that processes, now it's accelerated. So Mm -hmm. that idea of these different things merging has always been something that um, I've utilized in my career is like, how do I find other tools that accelerate what I can do today? So you didn't take out of the singularity, the singularity. Well, that the singularity is where it's all going. I mean, we see Moore's law in action. We see, uh, you know, prices moving down. We see capabilities moving up, everything scaling. Uh, And you're saying, do I care as much about the end point? Of that, well, we're actually going to get to that later in this talk. Okay, when oh, I, I, I I talk about every company. No, no, that, no, that that's it's not it's not a bad thing. It's while I was in uh, living in Hong Kong, there was this person who uh, ran American Airlines for Asia, and we would get together and we talk about what happens with the convergence of artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, three D printing, sensor tech, bioengineering. What happens to the society as a whole with those type of conditions transforming the way we live. So we actually looked, it was really kind of at this time, we, the first time you're seeing these convergences where 3D printing and robotics were connected or artificial intelligence helped the robotics to make a move. And we saw factories with 1,200 employees and then 12 robots put in and 1,000 people laid off. But these people had been working in these factories for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and all of them are gone. Mm-hmm. They, they're not working there. So we started asking the questions, what happens on a societal level? We looked back at the Germans. Germans were shipbuilders, and there was a transition. 
that happened, that it took time from shipbuilding, they went to automotive. And you saw like an X, Y axis in convergence so people could learn new skills. But what happens if it happens overnight? And what does that mean for the future of humanity? And so we were asking these questions. So you you were using a similar formulaic when you started expressing yourself, which I, I think is fascinating. Yeah, and you can look at the singularity in both positive and negative ways, right? Um, as you think about the people that are excluded from this um, and how did their lives change, that's a whole other topic. Um, but on balance, uh, I my position is it is good for humanity. And there it wasn't a bad or a good thing. We were just trying to figure out what that future would converge into? What does that mean as, for, at that point, seven and a half billion people? So yeah. Uh, yeah, the Singularity was an interesting book. I did not read the, uh, I'm being digital, but. Oh yeah. That, it's, and you'll read it and say, gosh, all of this has come true. <laughs> so it's incredible. Well, that, that, that's yeah. some people get it. Some people don't. The challenge is it's, it's easier to f- view in hindsight and you, and you, were you in the Valley when you were doing Brainy quotes? Uh, no, no. Uh, but that obviously influenced by it when I went to the Valley to then invest in frontier technologies to constantly was, was in, uh, San Francisco for that uh, period. So you were you were in Chicago, was it? Was it? Yeah. So that's, how was the ad agencies are in Chicago? I yeah, that's Chicago. true. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, so anything. So on influence, are these the the main drivers of your influence that moved yeah. pushed you forward? Yeah, definitely. And and the singularity. You know, I was just with all these propulsional engineers in Orlando at SciTech, and they're working on nuclear propulsion capabilities for this amazing future of you know, nuclear power, where we we really have more power all over the world. And what happens when energy uh, is more abundant and cheap? Um, maybe there will be more peace. This is how they, they see it, that we're going to have a more peaceful world, less wars over scarce resources and things like that. It's really a fascinating topic. Um, do, do you believe that? I think that um, the, uh, the, the power, there are people I'm involved with that are looking at nuclear power, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's so many hurdles for the public to be perceiving it as a safe thing. And like, um, and I think that it, it allows, unleashes a lot of uh, more uh, parity. Um, uh, I was at an event with Oliver Stone uh, that he, he produced a documentary called Nuclear Now. And it's trying to dispel all the public perception and damage that's been done since the PowerPoint plant scares of the 80s. We've lost years of uh, technological advancement because of public perception. Oh, and you look at France as a whole has a huge nuclear uh, infrastructure, which Mm -hmm. has kind of coming to its end in terms of having new facilities. But Germany uh, disbanded them 
because everybody was afraid. And interesting point, when we were creating the first four, we were designing the four phases of the moon, uh, the Project Moon Hut's four phases, on there, one of the teammates put a nuclear symbol. Mm. And that alone was enough to get people uh, <laughs> all up in arms. It, it, they, they don't even know that it, it is on the moon. I mean, there, it's not going to explode the same way. But it was enough where people focused so much so on that, that they couldn't get past it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's a it's a global challenge. And I don't even I didn't hear this movie that, uh, that Oliver Stone had made. Yeah. And then you did have what was it? Japan just had that uh, the, the meltdown scenario. So you hear the bad, but you don't hear the good. The fact that France is able to supply its population with a cheaper power supply. Right, right. But uh, the tools, we're talking about the tools you could have at the palm of your hand, like the internet. Uh, the other thing that I think relates to singularity, and we're talking about platforms that plug into each other, the advent of the iPhone was changing everything. Uh, the ability to have the internet in your hand and texting capability and the, the web, like, and videos, you know, on your phone, all that was fascinating. But to me, the, the iPhone that came out in 2007, I believe mm -hmm. yeah, is the same iPhone today. The boilerplate of that iPhone is the same today. The thing that's changed are the apps. So yes. the platform this powerful platform of multiple capabilities that anyone could even decide what the capabilities are that they want on the phone was so powerful. And that concept of building a platform for the ages and something that transformational, that was inspiring to me uh, as what, what other platforms are out there that either I want to invest in or work on building that could have this kind of power. And we'll get to that with the company I'm creating with. Okay. You know, that's the, the trans it's interesting. I'm trying to mind map out how these three different sets of conditions that you've given, which is the, the digital, the singularity or the uh, development and interconnectedness of all of these types of new tech. And then you bring it down to the palm of your hand. And at the same time, you and I, I mean, there was a challenge with getting on a simple platform or you know, we still have microwaves in our home and there's a, a huge disparity of, or a gap between the advanced and some of the things that we still as humans do every day. So it's just, it's a, it's a huge gap for, for most people. So for example, the creating a nuclear power facility is something that's not going to be well understood, even on the moon. And the majority of people don't know much about the iPhone. So. Right. And, and even um, now this is predating the, the crypto people and that, that involvement I've had, but the, the, the people that were working on um, Bitcoin technologies, their mantra, I would say circa 2017, 2018, when I met these folks, they were talking about the people that don't have a phone and don't, don't have banking and 
you know, yeah. they don't have a bank account. They don't have the ability to exchange goods easily or services easily, but the phone gave them that ability and getting, you know, so it really has impacted uh, the world in so many ways. It's uh, when we're designing, or I think most companies today, you're, you're looking at mobile first, mm-hmm. especially if you're global. Because if you're doing uh, Africa or you're working within the Africa region, the Asia region, phones are ubiquitous to a point where you know having a desktop or a system like that is not as not to say it's not as commonplace. That would be a very terrible way to express it. But you're on your phone the majority of your time. It's with you. It's going to you're going to get a message. You're going to test message. You're going to be trying to look something up. You're looking to see if you have a melanoma on your skin by taking a picture of it which you wouldn't do off of your desktop. Mm, nope. Okay. So, <laughs> no, no, it, it's, uh, I, I loved our first conversation when we got to know each other, uh, creating the title, and I would not have thought of this trajectory for you, so I appreciate it. Uh, so are we on to investing in the future? Yes, I think this all kind of built into this idea of, as I mentioned, the platforms, um, companies that I would want to invest in are not moonshots. They might have a big idea, but they have to have a platform approach that's de-risking the business. So that's producing multiple streams of revenue generating opportunity, generating opportunities, because not the, the bigger vision that they might have, what if that isn't achievable? I've always looked at investing from a conservative standpoint of what if everything you're doing fails, then what do you have to hang your hat on? So I was never investing in hype, never investing in loving it, you know, inspiring ideas, but always holding the founder's feet to the fire to say, but what if everything else fails will allow this business to be sustainable. And that's a discipline. And so I always look for people that were thinking that way. Um, And typically it was a company that would have a platform approach because they could say, and I'll use an example, um, the every company started out as a company called Clara and they're using synthetic biology to um, create custom amino acid profiles and products and the amino acid prof- amino acids are uh, used in tools, uh, foods like baking, where you could make the mm-hmm. fluffiest eggs or the stiffest meringue um, for a baking company, for example. And when they were starting out and they said, well, we have this big vision for, um, you know, working with all sorts of food companies to help customize the outcomes of their baking goods or even um, beverages and things like that. We said, well, what what can you produce at the lowest uh, quantity, but the highest cost to make sure that there's some moderate amount of income that you could get just at the start of this business? Because it's going to take a while to grow it. And they found this unique enzyme that they could create that interestingly is a preservative in wine and only five companies in the world produce this type of a preservative. I think it's called lysozyme. And they, five companies in the world that produce it, were all in Europe. 
And this preservative, again, supports the whole wine industry. It's in every glass of wine. Um, but what do you do when there's avian bird flu throughout Europe? What happens to your supply chain when there are only five producers of it? Mm -hmm. And now you can produce it using synthetic biology and it's only needed in small quantities and you could have it be a pure source of avian free, you know, avian right, yeah. flu free enzyme. Well, that's the kind of creative thinking that I love in founders and I value in our own company is that you have to be thinking about scrappy, creative ways to look at the long view of what your technology can do in the future, but you can't get carried away with it can do all of these amazing things. You have to decide what a starting point is and what's real today. And so they pursued that and that was really exciting. And other companies I influenced like um, Finless Foods, they were working on uh, stem cells for fish, uh, specifically for tuna. And stem cells for tuna? The cellular agriculture using tuna. Uh, instead of killing the fish, you were yep. cultivating tuna cells to create the yep. world's first premium grade sashimi. Oh, wow. Using cell, so you don't have to kill the, the fish right. in the ocean. You're, you're, yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's really just like yogurt. Is that is that an acceptable yogurt food in Japan? Grown and uh, the Japanese are um, actually a partner for Finless Foods. And um, I, I'm one of the people, few people in the world that can say I've had the first. Uh, Non-fish uh, fish. Cellular grown tuna. <laughs> I ate it. Yeah, it was. And guess what? It tasted like fish. <laughs> um, but but so the company, um, they they needed um, to be I thought they needed to be thinking, uh, where does where does this capability go in the future as well for because they are thinking about our sustainable uh, supply chains of you know, yeah. fish is such a problem. And what is it? 70% of the fish on our table when we go to the restaurant isn't even what we think it is. There's this. Oh, no. It, yeah. It's problem with and the provenance and the mercury and all this stuff. Yeah. The, the microplastics, it's part of the, the whole evolution of the food chain. Yeah. But the bigger numbers are, uh, to give an example, there are 300,000 fishing vessels just in China alone. And if you look at the volume of fish taken out of the waters, it's just an astronomical number to feed their people. You can't argue with people trying to feed their population. But we're seeing more and more closer to coastal region regions no longer having fish or large enough fish to be able to support their ecosystem. So to be able to create the, the challenges, are we we're solving the back end, and hopefully, in time, that will allow the front end, which is fish, to be able to thrive again. Yeah, and uh, we could have a whole show on that because I love talking <laughs> about fish, even though my life is about space. But, um, but but in this case, I I had been involved. In, uh, in a tertiary way in the space industry and was grow growing 
in interest in in what was happening and applications of microgravity and things like that, like what was happening on the space station and how could we utilize microgravity for uh, manufacturing in the future and even food production. And so I'd shared this with the company and and offered to connect them to people on the ISS. And they took my idea to heart and they ended up uh, getting a HP bioprinter on the ISS yeah. and produced the world's first fish cakes printed on the space station. So I was really proud of them for doing that because it was just an example of you know, what you could do. What well, was there any value to producing a fish cake on the International Space Station? Yeah, I mean, because it's in microgravity, yeah. how you are producing any kind of product is uh, unique because if we think about a future where we're going to have space stations, plural, um, and have to supply, not necessarily of resupply missions from Earth, uh, if it has to be produced on the station, how are we going to do that? How is the printer going to function and how does it, you know, create um, a solid? But the printer still needs supplies. Yeah. So so is there, is there not an equivalent mass to mass? You take whatever you're producing. You're not growing stem cells or cells or any type of, you're just taking a, a compound or whatever you've used as your original aggregate. And then what you're doing is creating something else out of it. Yeah. This correct? wasn't, this wasn't an end to end process, but of course we do know that given microgravity and all of these experiments that are happening on the space station today that are, um, they're finding that they can grow uh, in, of course, in 3D, you have an accelerated um, ability to grow cells. And so there are cancer fighting cells, uh, leukocytes, I believe, that are being mm -hmm. different crystals that are forming faster on the space station, or they have longer fibers and such that, or even so on the cellular side, that's really fascinating for the future of what we could produce on the station. But I was also fascinated with um, things like Zeblan, uh, the future production of Zeblan, because that uh, is a, a tool. I don't know what Zeblan is. That um, our undersea cables right now are transferring data and they have repeaters because they connect a cable to a cable. Yeah, that I'm familiar with. And the Zeblan is a fiber that um, the attenuation of it is um, such that in microgravity you have these super, you can have these super long, long fibers where the idea is you could have a cable that's so long you wouldn't have as many repeaters and that information yep. could travel from one end of the ocean to the other. It already travels in however many milliseconds, but it, yeah. you, you know, milli yeah, you're taking out the, you're also taking out a risk variable of having to have a repeater in the center of it. So you're now getting a longer duration signal Yeah, and it's, it's maintaining its efficacy through the entire system. So you're, you're actually creating spooled cable. Uh, you potentially could create spooled cable on a, uh, a station orbiting the that, Earth. And that's what they've been doing. That's what they've been testing. And the idea that it's so valuable that, that that's why you would do it in microgravity and then you bring it down for these undersea cables. And then our ability to transmit data is even faster than it already is. And uh, the world gets even smaller.
right? As that information yeah. can travel. No, I, I'm I'm traveling back to conversations we've had about biotech and biology being done above, beyond Earth, low Earth orbit environments. They're getting reactions where they expect one type of growth, but they're getting ten times the amount of growth in one in another area, and no growth in the area that they anticipated. So it would be like your neck would be. Uh, two meters, two, uh, six feet long, but your head and your body would stay the same. And so you're getting these anomalies out of the reaction. And But you're looking to create the cable. We just had on Ken from Redwire, and he talked about yep. just creating the molecular structure, bringing it back and, and creating it on Earth, because that works far better than trying to create that up in microgravity. Yep. Then one of these, Red Wire was, they acquired Made in Space that was working on, and we had invested in them. Um, they were, uh, the idea of printing structures on orbit and large structures on orbit so you don't have to send the mass on a rocket is fascinating. And um, they also have been advancing Z-Blan and some robotic yeah. capability and they just put it they just put a new device uh, up there a new factory t- small factory type but it's ken saven mm. i was trying to remember his name my my grandfather's name was slaven and i kept on trying to say where is it where's the name it's saven but ken saven if you don't know him he's did a, a brilliant uh, explanation of how the crystallization on uh in microgravity is enough all you need is a tablespoon of something. You can bring it back and duplicate it. And the question I asked is, how does it work? And his answer was, we don't know. <laughs> it just works. Mm. So you can create a crystalline structure or any type of atomical uh, configuration. And as long as you get enough of it, you can come back. And the way the universe works, it will duplicate that structure over and over and over again. There, it, he said, we don't know why which I thought was fascinating. Mm, yeah. Um, there, th- this has been studied for a long time and Zeblan in particular, um, I haven't found a company yet that's really got the legs that we would be looking for to, to make an investment, but in it, but science is all valuable, right? These are, these are like exquisite, science missions, which is kind of getting to my next point. Well, but, you, but you called it as I investing in the future mm-hmm. when uh, two things. One, I'd like to know when you ask this question, let me go back uh, to what would be the, the low hanging fruit or the repetitive or the value add that you're creating if this goes south? How do you get individuals to discover that? That would be my first question. And the second one is investing in the future. What do you actually mean by that when it comes to, and you can only talk about yourself, when it comes to you sitting down and making these decisions? So those are two different questions. How do you get them to, and how do you analyze investing? How do we get them to... To, to find that low-hanging fruit. Uh, you said you went back to the people yeah, with the fish and you said, yeah. find it. Yeah. But finding it, uh, people come back with really bad ideas. 
Is there something that you've learned over the years that helps to point an individual, a mechanism, a tool, a question, or philosophy that allows them to find something that has, in your case, it's a, a financial return, the way you were expressing it? Well, I'll give you a good example because it's, it's quite an exciting story of Axiom Space. I was the first investor in Axiom Space that is now sending their third uh, crew of commercial astronauts to the ISS uh, this week, actually. Yep. And so Axiom's goal is to be uh, creating the world's first commercial space station, and then they expect to have multiple space stations because that's what we envision for the future. But starting with attaching to the ISS and building out Axiom Station uh, to the point where it's functioning, and then the ISS is going to be deorbited. And did they just say they're even considering 2035 now? They keep. Was that they, just? They do keep pushing the date out. But <laughs> when you have something that's this massive capex uh, to build a space station, how do you financially uh, support that? Well, they were they had to think and really strategize, and they realized that because they were already they already had this expertise of human spaceflight under their belt, the co-founder of Axiom is Mike Safradini, who was the yep. head of the International Space Station for over a decade and you know had a 4,000 people and a $4 billion budget he managed. I mean, this is someone that knows how to, how to run a station and keep everybody safe and, and, and just phenomenal uh, people that he had attracted that all had great respect and, and, and capabilities under his watch. Well, that skill set, how many people in the world would have that skill set? Like, not many. Uh, so could they take that human space flight expertise and now monetize it? Uh, and they did for astronaut training, uh, training the astronauts for tr uh, private missions to the International Space Station. So they're the first company to have the right to have commercial astronauts on the ISS for 14 day. They actually had a 17 day mission previously. So people think SpaceX is going to um, the ISS. They do take them to the ISS as a partner, but it's Axiom that is running the mission on the station. With they're, they're, SpaceX is a logistics company. Right. It's not a space company. It's a logistics company yeah. with the geography between Earth and, at this point, at this point. Uh, low Earth orbit. Yeah, at this point, because that's, but they're, they're a logistics firm. And so, yes, the, that is, their skill set is not the, 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 we're calling them spacers because there's we there's going to be a lot of different terms, but individuals who are educated well enough to be able to perform up beyond Earth, and so you see a fourteen and seventeen day mission. So you're so the people who are going up are not skilled to fly, like getting on a plane. They're skilled to do something else in the International Space Station. They have tasks that and an agenda and studies that they're doing and a whole you know. Uh, itinerary that the, and led by a commander that's that's leading them in this case it's michael lopez alegria who's one of the most storied astronauts uh in in the astronaut hall of fame etc he's phenomenal and i don't even know which mission this is but he's got quite a history as an astronaut and 
great uh, leader for the team. So, so they had the discipline to say, if we're going to build the space station, but we need financial strength behind us first, how do we make money uh, before we go to the space station? Um, Obviously there's government funding that they could seek out, which they did do for some missions with mice. I love to call them the Mousternaut missions. Um, (laughs) And then they also just had a three, I think, $0.2 billion contract. I might have that wrong, but it's to design spacesuits for um, for the IS for the ISS or act. Yeah, that, that's yeah. That yeah. did they buy? Were they the ones who bought or did Voyager bought by the that new outfit? God, I was we were talking to him. Guy at a, a university. Okay, remember the guy's name off the top of my head. But yes, I've seen the contract and I've seen some of the samples that they've put up. Yeah, so, uh, online. So they're a good example of. What well, was that? You who said to them. Was that you who said to them, find low-hanging fruit, and they found it, or was this something that they did anyway? Well, we kept asking the question of what, how is the business model, how does this, how do you square this, you know? And so they had done a lot of studies. They had um, uh, firms that that helped them assess different ways of monetization. And, and so mm-hmm. they were more business savvy um, already going into it to, to figure out how they were going to um, uh, get those first dollars in and, and, um, and fill out the manifest because this hadn't been done before. You have to now go around the world and find those individuals that are able to pay $55 million for a flight. And what it's evolved into, which is quite exciting, is a relationship now with ESA, where the astronauts that are going with them, uh, I think they have one or two ESA astronauts, but ESA is booking missions with Axiom now, which is really great. It's really great. Um, So Walter Villadei is coming from the Italian Air Force. He'll be on the mission and as I mentioned, Mike L.A., and then they have a Swiss astronaut, and then the first Turkish astronaut it will be going. And this is also exciting because when we looked at their their plan, um, as you heard, I'm an English major. I love to to craft uh, um, a good good written piece of material. And so uh, at the very beginning, I was editing their their decks, you know, to, to help them raise money. Um, cause it was kind of scraping and crawling at the start of the, of a company like that to find people that had also a big vision and wanted to financially support it. Um, this was not a time when anybody would have been thinking this way. So my, my wife was an English minor. So okay. I, I, I do, she looks at a sentence, she, she'll put down a book because it's not written well. And not to the point where it's aggravating, but she said it's very difficult. So, yes, I would have her look at whatever. And she said, ah, no, it's got to be done this way. It's got to be done this way. We really, a concept that I think we helped hone together in those early days was the idea that you're bringing a nation, when a sovereign astronaut is going to the space station, you're bringing that nation is going to space effectively because it's not just the person it's the whole footprint of all the people that are connected to that person and Mm -hmm. are supporting that person that that you're bringing that nation to space and then you're bringing space back to the nation with then what's achieved on orbit so this 
interdependency, this relationship of helping, you know, as you say, like uh, mirth and creating these environments where it all, it all comes back to help humanity is the point. Yes, that's and I, the... I helped. We help communicate that together to future astronauts. So the the second part of the question was was the where did you? I, there were two parts. Now I, I didn't write down the second one. Investing in the future. Oh. Yeah, investing in the future itself. That how do you calculate, figure out, or what's what's underneath that? Sure. Well, all of these concepts that I'm shared were all very new and groundbreaking and um, enabling, in my view, future marketplaces. And the reason, and I know you don't want to talk about money and finance on this show, but- No, no, no. We, we, that, I don't, there's no challenge with that. None at all. Okay. None at all. Well, we, we've, we've had people talk about all sorts of numbers, so that's not an issue. Well, you can't just have something that's interesting and new- um, become a sustainable business. It has to have financial heft to it or p- potential to have um, uh, hiring people and growing a business and, and, um, and, and having other businesses that evolve into an ecosystem, right? You can't, um, it isn't an emerging technology that's going to be helping build a future if it doesn't have those characteristics in my view. So if you just, so you can go into anywhere you'd like that. We have a, a paper written by uh, a professor, Daniele from the University of Messina on economics, and he labeled it e- um, coopetition. And we've had guests on the program who have kind of argued, and we know quite a few people who have argued that there's without government intervention, there is no financial mechanism to be able to make some of the projects that are put out there viable. So if you're going to start a space business, I'm going to use that term even the way it's, we've talked about it, space is not an industry, it's geography. But if you're going to start a business, m- many of those that have survived have been because there is uh, government. Co- there are government contracts, and NASA was one that made that transition about a decade ago yeah. where they're spending the money more in the – in this sector, however, that becomes astrobotics. That becomes where you don't have a $15 billion budget. You have a smaller budget and you have to make something work. And who knows what will happen when you have companies that don't have that that heft of bankroll to be able to address the challenges. Mm. Interesting you mentioned astrobotics because the CLIPS program was a $3.2 billion program over 10 years designed to give $300 million a year to companies that are going to work on uh, commercial lunar payload systems. Um, and they, CLIPS is Commercial Lunar Payload System. Um, mm-hmm. Is that what it stands for? And Astrobotic was one of the winners of those contracts and... Um, but the contracts in are kind of it was it was a focused on landers all the contracts mm-hmm. focused on landers and what's ironic and we've talked to NASA about this before is the sustainable system means that you shouldn't just have a lander you need to have an orbiter <laughs> because an <laughs> orbiter without a lander does not get you very much it doesn't get you the data back to the earth so what are you doing um, I don't really understand the 
that um, progression. We've talked to, um, when he was there, uh, Thomas Serbukin about this and, and trying to have more um, exposure for, for orbiter companies because that's really, they should go hand in hand is my point. Um, and I don't know what, did Astrobotic have um, a news story about their landing mission? Because you've got a few others on the way now. Intuitive Machines is next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't heard any others, but the, uh, the there there are risks associated with today the process of investment where you're giving 130 million dollars or 250 million dollars. Yeah, it's a high bar. To, it's a high bar to achieve some of these directives, and it's uh, it could be spreading self to spreading too thin. It might be the opposite where innovation. Uh, flourishes because there are many players trying to achieve this desired outcome. So how do you determine what you're going to invest in the future? Right. Well, it's so great that you brought up the the government investment because the government dollar government dollars for investors are an indication of great signal in terms of is the company does a company have enough of the skill sets and capabilities that the government finds valuable to award them a contract in the first place? So hmm. when, interesting. You look at it that way. I, I do. Yeah. Because uh, depending on the award, <laughs> I, 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 I you know, just putting it out there, just interesting that you looked at it from that perspective. I mean, there have been some cases where there's some, award and it's been handed out like candy and there isn't really a differentiation between who received it and and that but i mean in my own company were for example one of four companies with hundreds that applied for the very first um uh, uh awards from uh, national security innovation capital and they only had a 15 million dollar budget several hundred companies applied and only four won and we were one of four that won two million dollars to advance on our prototype because we um, jump ahead of the supply chain with the satellite we're building so that um, investors actually it requires a higher level of sophistication to understand when dollars are awarded is that a significant win or not so we were learning that ourselves early on. It's, uh, we have a lot of discussion within Project Moon Hut about governments and accepting money from one government means you might be losing out on opportunities for another government. There are alliances that are out there. And if you're trying to create a global ecosystem, you are aligning yourself one way or another. But we also talk about the challenges when you are dealing with the bureaucracy, and we were named we were named Project Moon Hut because of working with NASA. And the first time I visited the facilities in Silicon Valley, the first three hours, all I heard about was how much money was wasted. The first three hours, and I was not, uh, 2014, same time as you, all I heard about from them was $10 billion wasted here, $2 billion wasted there. This was wasted in this investment. This was wasted. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, my God, this is crazy. 
So do you, you feel that because there's that investment mechanism, you feel more confident, but when you invest different than NASA investing or the government investing, when you invest, how do you figure out which company that you're, you've got 37, how do you pick one? Because you've gone from fish to uh, cables under the sea. Right. Sure. And, and, <laughs> uh, and satellite based internet and things like that. Yep. Satellite based internet. So how do how do you choose? Well, you know, there's so many, uh, gosh, the idea of government dollars and how they help a company, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, even dollars, like, as I was said, you were saying you heard about dollars that were wasted or what have you, um, there are different types of awards. And so, um, if the award is to help a company have a proof of their business case and achieve that, uh, that proof of the business model, I'm all for it. But in other cases, it might, in most cases, it's to expand a capability that might not result in some, uh, next phase of the company, for example. Um, we had an award with uh, NASA Advanced Innovative Concepts. It's called NIAC, N-A-I-C. And very few of these are handed out. I was with Michael Point, the director of the program at SciTech uh, on a panel last week. And he even said um, the phase three NIAC, which are these, these really big ideas of our future in space, future, future capabilities. Um, that's what you apply to, uh, you submit. So it's not likely to have a commercial application for a long time, but that's the point of it. So we won this NIAC for our uh, a, a, a craft that we created that is a light sail that allows you to go from the earth to Jupiter in a single year. And this would be faster than Voyager and quite exciting if we could create that in the future. Uh, mm -hmm. so only six companies in the history of the program ever won this. We won this in concert with JPL and Aerospace Corporation. And it was all very, um, you know, exciting to have won it because it's this prestigious thing. But are we creating that satellite that can go and it's small it's or it's not small but it's it doesn't carry people this is a just a yeah a, a, a light sail um light craft it's called uh it could go to the earth to jupiter in a single year we could have cameras that would go on it that would image an exoplanet at 100 billion times magnification and go out to the solar gravity lens focus region and it's all very exciting but what happens after we won our award Who's ready to go pick up that mission? Did Yuri Milner call us from breakout and say, hey, I want to give you $20 million to build that? Well, he hasn't, you know, so it doesn't it, it doesn't have its next phase yet, but maybe it will in the future. At least at is least Pete, it, is Pete is Pete still with breakthroughs? Yeah. Pete Wharton. Yeah. OK. Yeah, yep. so I don't know those those folks really well. I just know what they've invested in now. And I'm just saying that we win this award and everybody's proud of themselves and we do the research and it's all quite exciting and we complete it. But what happens next? You don't have mm -hmm. an ecosystem supporting it or commercial uh, investors coming out saying, I'm ready to go put more. Because because it becomes yeah. because it fits into the category of science, research and exploration. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, 
and this is my thinking, is the geography is too big. It's so far away that individuals can't create that ecosystem. You, it would take a long time. And that's, that is partially why the construct of mirth came about, because we are three days away. We can create an economic system and an ecosystem where we're supplying, creating products and services within this geography that works. It's, it's like saying, hey, family, I'm taking off and going f uh, across the globe as compared to I'm just going to travel down a few kilometers or miles. I'm going to set up another community of business and will you buy from us? And so so you when going back to the question about investment, you're investing in the light sale because it sounds like it's interesting to you. Well, this was our company that created it. So it wasn't me investing. It was NASA investing in us. In this case, I was, I'm sorry, I was flipping from my being investor to having received investment at my, okay. so I didn't mean to. Th that's okay. I was just trying to follow mm -hmm. it. Uh, yeah, it's so, okay. So this actually is a good segue into science missions today versus science missions tomorrow. I think yep. it's point three on the list. Yes, it's three. Yep. So when we think about what NASA invests in and their purpose, it's really about answering these these deep questions about our universe and that they're laid out in the decadal survey. And so all of these large investments that NASA has are to go after really what I would like to call exquisite science, very, very hard to, you know, very difficult missions, very involved, intricate capabilities that, that, that have to have hundreds of people working on them, like the OSIRIS-REx mm -hmm. uh, asteroid mission to Bennu, for example, it went out 200 million miles uh, to get to the asteroid Bennu and have a sample return, um, which is, um, you know, uh, our friend Dante, um, Oh goodness, Dr. Dante, I'm forgetting his last name, who who was uh, the PI on that project. Um, really incredible, you know, to do something like that. But that's where larger dollars and the focus should be. But what continues to happen today is uh, science missions that kind of uh, borderline compete with commercial capabilities because commercial uh, science missions have accelerated and companies mm -hmm. are able to do more uh, for less money. And so the government shouldn't be investing in capabilities that are replicated commercially. They're, they're not supposed to do it, but it does happen. And it, and it then limits um, commercials ability to advance and at the same time it limits them because they should just be focusing on the exquisite you you're kind of uh piggybacking on jeffrey manber's commentary where he says uh the space agencies is one of the worst things that happened to the ecosystem mm -hmm. because by concentrating all the capital to these agencies what you've done is you've taken away that commercial impetus. So everybody's just fighting for agency dollars mm -hmm. instead of creating commercial alliances 
to build something forward with like all the other industries or most of the other industries that are out there. And he, he's been very vocal. He was vocal on our program too, saying that hasn't helped move things forward. It's, he believes it's actually hindered mm-hmm. progress. Yeah. I'll never forget. I went to a GeoInt event. I was speaking there and uh, the, someone stopped me to ask about uh, my company Explore and, and they said, oh, you're commercial. You're trying to put us out of business. They were from the government. And I said, that's, I said, no, we're actually <laughs> enabling you to do more of what you do best. That's really the truth. Um, the, these exquisite missions. I mean, when you're talking about. But, that, but that's the, that's scarcity and abundance. Yeah. If you're taking something they don't have instead of infinite by us doing what we're doing, you have more. Yep. That's exactly it. Yeah. And, and the thing is the, we have to keep up with the times. Technology has scaled. Costs have come down. There is a democratization happening. And so that's where, where they can be more free to do harder things because commercial has got this, you know, we've got. So, so so what's, uh, on the optimistic side. So, I mean, our company, if, for example, you know, we I'm sitting worked, here trying and this to is yeah. talking about. Uh, oh, I also realized my wife, by the way, went to Newhouse School of Communications advertising. So advertising in English. <laughs> I think that's kind of fascinating. But uh, just aside where brains go where they shouldn't go. Optimistically, what do you think based upon this uh, version of tomorrow, these this science missions today versus tomorrow? What do you think tomorrow is? Well, this is this is what my company we want to unleash is science for everyone, democratizing access to um, for researchers, for scientists to access data. You have scientists today that, for example, might wait 10 years to have access to the Hubble for an observation night. They'd spend years mm-hmm. trying to get just one window of an obser- observation time. And my company is going to have a satellite that can go and allow you to have unlimited observation time because instead of a ground-based telescope, we would have a space-based telescope and it would be a commercial company that would allow you access so you don't have to necessarily... Now, you wouldn't have the same level of, of ex- exquisite Right, you don't have a, the same level of complication no, and capabilities, no. but but you're so you're hard. You are both hardware and software platforms. Right. So you're tying back your the uh, the digital being digital, mm-hmm. but you've got a software platform that enables uh, more access to usability of the data that comes out of it, or your own experimentation or your own vantage point that you couldn't have gotten otherwise. Correct? Yeah, I think the. Um the access to to data is a whole other um, point here. But, it, you know, it, scientists will wait years for access to the Hubble, true, and they will always do that. But there's also a lot of valuable science that can be done when it's 
not accessing the Hubble when it's accessing another small spacecraft, for example, with a telescope on it. So would you, would that be democratized data? Yeah. Is that the way yeah. you're playing mm-hmm. it? So so data that sits or is generated is no longer you're paying. I'm going to make this up, and then you can tell me if I'm wrong. You're paying for a subscription model to be able to have access to what sci- what exploration or scientific endeavor your satellite is working on, and then individuals, if they pay this subscription, are capable of either having the data that comes off of this, or they can potentially pay for their own exclusive data in certain types of conditions. There will be subscription services in the future. This is probably the case um, in the earlier missions before that exists. Um, But I think, yeah, long-term there will be subscription models for sure. Um, We have to enable that uh, because I I remember uh, investors saying, uh, so at some point, I can go check on my vacation house that's on the water and make sure that there's been no storm and, you know, the, that there's, you know, everything's intact. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. could you subscribe to a feed of that in the future? Yes, you can. Yes, you will be able to. Won't that be exciting anywhere in the world to say, I want to check on my house. I want to <laughs> yeah, I want to watch it. I want to watch it flow down the street as a storm as a comes. Uh, you you use the term achieve data fusion. Now, to, correct me if I'm wrong. Data fusion is the aggregation of multiple data sources so that you can get either higher fidelity or better consistent data. What do you mean when talking about this? tomorrow with the satellite and what you're offering and the capabilities, how does yours create data fusion? And maybe my, my answer of what data fusion is, is correct, but how does that fly into it? I do want to, I do want to get to the data fusion discussion, but I think that's really how we're going to create value from commercial satellites. And I think maybe we should be talking about the, the, um, just the capabilities today. I mean, we kind of talk about government to commercial. Do you feel like we've covered that? No, well, I, I, and anything you've got, you can always add, but I'm reading uh, science missions today versus tomorrow. So I'm trying to dig into today. Are you still categorizing this as still government? And then tomorrow was not, or are we, are, are we close enough to be considered a hybrid? yet because so many companies without without nasa contracts or european space agency or japanese space agency or south africa would not be around are are we still on that continuum all the way at the end of still being a part of a uh, government sponsored ecosystem well and this gets to what have we achieved today in space with scaled satellites and how did those um, prove uh, what we are those proving to be capable will they prove to be have higher capable in the future because if they are high have higher capable in the future then government will be making investments and buying data from them and we're seeing this happen um, with what's coming online with one of our capabilities, which is winning the National Reconnaissance Office hyperspectral contract. So today, hyperspectral data 
commercially is not available. Hyperspectral allows you to affect. Thank you. I, I was going to ask. It, it allows you to, to, to understand the chemistry of the earth from space. So all these different bands are in, indicative of different chemistries of what you're looking at on the earth. So you can look at Uh, specifically it's valuable for precision agriculture, which is why the National Geospatial Agency is so interested in it. But you could see uh, the nutrients in the soil, if there's um, uh, too much pesticide, if there's too much nitrogen, what the water levels are, what the soil quality is. uh, These insights from a a hyperspectral imager are so valuable because they allow us to monitor the climate, not just on a on a basis. If you had a drone going over a one acre field or something, that doesn't get you a lot of data. But if you have a satellite going over the Earth sixteen times a day, collecting data of the entire Earth, and you can monitor um, all the land on the Earth and all the agricultural land, uh, you get real indications of of climate change and how you can then have actionable intelligence to increase yield. So this is not a geosynchronous orbit. This is a slow earth orbit. This is okay. So are, I'm going to ask you the question because I can't forget to ask this. You're, we're now talking about soil degradation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just read today an entire article about soil capabilities. Uh, I've I've looked into and read about the challenges, for example, in parts of Asia, where there's so m- chemicals have been so overused and the soil has been so degraded mm-hmm. that there could be less than decades less of of topsoil left for them. But there are other parts of the world that might have opportunities. What is what is your data signaling for? for our long-term future when it comes to agriculture and and crop development, all those things that make us be able to survive? Well, when we can look at the at the earth and and observe specific plots of land and understand how we can uh, reduce use, uh, how we use our resources, how we reduce fertilizer, how we um, reduce herbicide, pesticide use, or um, manage water and reduce water where it's, you know, we have too much water. All of these things lead to better yields and um, better crops. You're talking about now replenishing the soil, and that's that involves adding nutrients to the soil. There's a whole company I've been talking to working on this, which is um, um, re- fixing our problems with soil depletion. Um, but with the soil that we have and the ability to monitor is, is a huge leap forward. Um, oh, it, it is a, it's a huge challenge. And I will um, add a multi- multiplier to it with the climate change that's been happening. And let's use Europe as an example, where we're going from uh, X temperature, I'm not going to, I don't know the specifics of the average temperature that's sitting across, say, Spain, Italy, Greece, uh, Serbia, Macedonia, uh, that whole region in there where we're seeing Spain is now turning into more of a desert environment, not a lot of rain. 
uh, that was the vegetable garden of Europe, all the way through to I was I was told Prosecco, which is moving north. It's it's going north more north north in Spain, which is they're having challenges growing because it's not getting cold enough. Just to know the soil composition or the soil specifics, how are you integrating this interconnected this complexity into these formulaics? If we're seeing I mean, windstorms that we've not had ever. I mean, pl- uh, one of our teammates, Space Affairs, does follows all the launches that are out there, and he he follows them and posts. He does a YouTube channel on that. I think it's also Facebook. And he said the launch, the launch capability or predictability has gone down because of just changes in climate. So how does this? what you're talking about, this hyperspectral data, how do you see that helping if there's a compounding challenge happening within that environment? Well, you asked about data fusion and all these other instruments that help with predictive weather monitoring can also be on top of a platform. So it's that merging of different uh, pieces of information that give us the full picture. Obviously, it can't just be one image in a vacuum, you've got to factor in all these other other um, data sources to, to again, have actionable intelligence. Um, we are, with, with our company, we get one satellite up and then we have a whole uh, trove of satellites that we, we launch, uh, keep launching after that. As they mm-hmm. all then interconnect and um, bring that data back to the ground, we're going to have um, so much more actionable intelligence. Today, you can't really get it because um, it's, well, from commercial, and I am specifically talking about commercial, where a company could be signing up to say, I specifically, Walmart wanting to monitor all of its, you know, uh, stores, for example, and, or land that they have, and in a daily basis, what kind of data can we download that is useful to them uh, hourly or you know minute to minute? We don't have that yet, but we will in uh, the next few years. It'll be huge what they can tap into uh, their own feed. But your your tech that you're working on is the democratization. But it goes back to you leveraging a platform, having the scalability having the access to be able to find the data going all the way back to, like we say, improving life on Earth. We're not just about humans. And so democratized means accessible. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. free. No, I didn't mean free. Yes. It means that more individuals have access to it. And therefore, at a cost that's reasonable Mm -hmm. as compared to, and I'm going to use it, it's $100,000 per hour to do X versus $1,500 per month to do Y. Yeah, and, and a company, it's making it affordable for anyone to be buying data and then deriving uh, their value from it. Um, we don't have to be experts in their field. We're just collecting the data for them and pushing it out. Uh, and then they can analyze it and uh, find, uh, find the value because uh, it's going to be honed to their specific needs. But... Um, this has been an interesting uh, topic of like why 
why doesn't a company have to be a specialist in oil and gas and agriculture and mining and insurance and finance? Well, all those companies want the data we, we collect. That is data. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be specific to its uses because they already know the use cases. And they know, they You're giving data. They can interpret it the way right. they'd like. That's right. So uh, it sounds like the way you talk to you, the satellite is the iPhone. Yes. Yes, it is. Just so you know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever that said that. That is exactly it. I mean, some people to, want to I've been listening to you talk and in my head, I was trying to figure out your modality. Mm-hmm. And your modality is the iPhone is the satellite. Mm-hmm. It is because we've built something that's powerful enough to support all of this functionality for anyone. That was the idea. If you had a magic wand, what satellite would you build and what could it do? Well, it would do anything for anyone, which is which is a different philosophy than every satellite that's gone before us because most companies that have been uh, built, building satellites to date came out of the commercial mindset of, government mindset, I should say, uh, I'm going yep. to build a satellite with a specific mission for a specific customer to secure a specific government contract and pay my way. Yeah. And that and explore. It, do, do you believe, I mean, it's, I believe others have a similar modality that they're trying to accomplish with data collection or do you, are, are you not finding that? Well, there's this push from every company has to raise funds to, to run their business. And you, you talk to venture firms that also might be putting in their two cents to, and you might change your company strategy. If, if that's the case, if somebody's, you know, wanting to invest and they say, but if you do it this way, I'll invest. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what's caused people to operate the way they do today, but most companies are, I would say, aligning with a venture SaaS model, where in the SaaS world, you're doing one thing and drilling down and doing one thing and doing it well. And that does not work for what we wish to achieve. We don't wish to achieve one thing, one capability. If you're going to it is you should get uh, all the data. uh, You and... uh, Let's use the 2014 as the date. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but I came in and I have not had the same modality of thinking from the very beginning. And it, is, it has been really, really, really a challenge. The, the first day I was at NASA Ames facility, I turned over to Lynn Harper and I said, I don't get everything you guys are talking about. Why don't you take a piece of the International Space Station and push it to the moon? I mean, you're talking about far out science fiction. And she looks at me and she says, David, if we did that, that would be similar to pushing a Winne- putting a Winnebago on the moon. And so far since I've been involved in this ecosystem, it has been challenging because there are a lot of old thinkers. And I won't name a person's name who's been on the podcast, also runs a very, 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 very large organization. And I asked him, 
with all the tens of thousands of people involved, who do you think could understand these concepts? Because they're very, they're more, I guess the term we were using was more contemporary, more modern. And he said, I could probably only name 22 people. Those are, that was his number. The rest of the people he said are all old school. They're all old school. So it does it, are you saying that you're one of the few? Mm. Well, when my first trip to a NASA facility, the I forget who the director was that uh, briefed us, but they were very proud of saying that they move at a glacial pace. <laughs> I mean, this was a point of pride. And, and there, the reason is about safety and complexity. Yeah. And I understand that. But that's all good. But commercial doesn't move at a glacial pace. C- commercial is is really pushing to to advance. And so we're a little oil and water there, you know. Well, yeah, uh, it's not that it's oil and water. You're still requiring, let's say, that the uh, government is the oil or the water. You can pick which one. But there is still a very, very, very strong symbiotic nature that it sounds like we're relying on. So I, I, yes, commercial wants to move at a faster pace, but it's still so reliant on whether it be FAA approvals or uh, security measures or ITAR, EAR, CFIUS challenges, or it could be, uh, I mean, the, the list is extensive. So how do we get the science missions for today versus tomorrow? How do we get, or or we're actually in transitioning from government to commercial? I guess we're talking about it. Number four, how do we get from government to commercial where you and I would be not saying to one another, yeah, if not for that acts, they would still not be here. They wouldn't have made it. How do we get there? Well, we... Uh, is that and you can go wherever you want with number four well, transitioning from government to, to commercial. Look at there has been a huge achievement with SpaceX uh, launching a Dragon capsule uh, for first for cargo, then for crew. That was groundbreaking. You know, we had years after the shuttle where any trip to the ISS required a, a flight on the Soyuz. Right. It was the and most end of I didn't know this, but without the Russian help from the from shuttle time until we wouldn't have had anybody be going. That's up right. There. The Russians, the Russians and the Americans, even during all the challenges they were having, they were still working together when it came to beyond Earth. Mm-hmm. So so we have achievements with SpaceX leading the way and pushing and, and, and getting us to to have that commercial cargo, commercial crew. And then with um, the Ukraine-Russia war, you have an advancement in the need for commercial. You've seen Mm -hmm. SpaceX providing internet services via Starlink. Um, So this is now great for, the eye is on commercial capabilities for government to get a leg up from the commercial companies that have um, something they need, right? So um, in the case is we're talking about NRO and the hyperspectral contract, 
they want that hyperspectral data and they're going to be buying it from commercial companies. That is the goal. They wanted optical data in the past. They had a contract for electro-optical um, and they bought optical data um, to the tune of uh, $300 million a year for Maxar, uh, $30 some million a year from Planet, and I think it was $100 million a year from Black Sky. So these were great uh, investments in something that they wanted, but commercials still had to prove that you want to buy it from us. And that's the hard part is because we're talking about government providing funding <laughs> for a commercial yep. company to reach that point, get through the valley of death, get to the proof of concept, get to a business model that's sustainable, and then they'll buy. So there's this Darth of that, um, you know, a valley in between of how mm -hmm. do you bridge that gap? And there's so many Space Force, Air Force <laughs> conferences talking about how do we bridge this? But once we bridge it, we get to the other side and it's proven. I think that's when we're going to have government saying, OK, I really I really do want to shift gears instead of. And we did see them shifting gears in originally buying just hardware. They're finally beating a drum and saying we're going to buy services, not hardware. And that that actually is an important moment. Um, my company, Explore, is the first to coin the phrase and use the phrase space as a service. Um, we did this for a reason because government needed to buy space services. We didn't want them to buy our satellite. That wasn't the point. We're not, in a, we're not a hardware company building a satellite to just get a government contract for them to buy it. We're a company providing services and saying, you too can buy this service just like like anyone else. You're on parity with everyone else, government. Uh, yet, so I'm, uh, the question that I'm trying to get back to is, going back to transitioning from government to commercial. I know what you're, I hear what you're saying. It's very obvious. If we can get them to untap and start using the services that are created by individual, by organizations, uh, the SA, the uh, get away from the SAS model, or there are always going to be specific categorical satellites or, or missions or approaches that are being used. And there, we've now got this new modality of uh, space as a service. Where do you see that trajectory creating an inflection point so it becomes not this conversation we're having. Oh, it's actually now in the um, Space Force doctrine that they must buy services. No, that's not what I meant. That's still the government having to buy services. But when do we get to a point where it's not the government's contracts that keep the organizations alive? Mm. And I, I'm looking also on a global scale, but let's we tend to be more domestic in the U.S. But how do we get to that point where, hey, let's just say tomorrow, government said no more to anybody. We're not going to fund you. We're not going to set you up. We're not going to supply you. We're not going to buy from you. You're on your own. Right. Where would we be? Well, we we will be at the point, at least in in the case of what I'm working on with our satellites, um, we we have commercial interest that's extremely strong. 
Oh yeah, the sounds like a great product. So Absolutely. We're going to be tapping that even before we fly with the companies that are, you know, in such a are are great thinkers and realize that they should be calibrating with us before we fly to make sure they're first in line for our data. I, again, I, I agree with that. You, you've got a product that has that ubiquitous nature. It's going to be, you're supplying raw data or mm -hmm. different types of data. You're supplying data that organizations can use. I'm not talking about this sentence, transitioning from government to commercial. Weird. It's been a promise for a very long time, since 1970s, there would be this space ecosystem. Well, let's say the odd, let's say government didn't buy cars, there would still be an automotive industry. If government didn't buy corn, there would still be an agricultural oh, industry supplying yeah. corn. Well, just like How they transitioned out of the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they. So when when is that? When do you see? When do you feel that it will hit? Oh, asking you to be a soothsayer. You pull out your magic ball, kind of spin it a few times, look inside of it, and uh... well, because of our plan to be okay, I and I don't want to go into um, our defense arena, but because of defense. Uh -huh. Uh, when you think about the the um, capabilities of our satellites today and that industry, you have to think about it like it's an iceberg. And what we've been talking about with commercial activity is on the top part of that iceberg. What is below the surface is the defense side of, this, of okay. the industry. Yeah that will always exist. So maybe it's with what you're saying, it's really when do we tr transition to it only be to only the government being involved in really that that other side, which is their responsibility of protecting our our nation and our way of life. Okay, and I wasn't going there, so that's interesting that you went there and I appreciate it. Yes, with the uh we have several people who different parts of the world who are working with Project Moon Hut. We can't name names. They've, we've signed NDAs and they've signed NDAs. They don't want to be known. But part of the challenge that we run into and we discuss with multiple branches of different governments around the world or militaries is how do we make sure that this becomes, at least on the Project Moon Hut side, and that's why I'm asking these questions, because we're looking to create that moon and earth ecosystem, that mirth ecosystem. And I'm, I'm trying to extrapolate when from someone like you, who's obviously very intelligent, knows the ecosystem, knows the terminology, sees the funding and the movement of, of uh, cash as well as technology. Where is that promise of the future? Um, and you're not you're not alone when I ask this question. It's a challenging one. It's being funded underneath by a lot of capital coming from uh defense departments and as well as we see the expansion of national space agencies there's a transfer of happening there too because the each space agency is involved in the national interest um and maybe it just becomes more about um what's good for 
um, elevating the nation, um, but they're not as hands-on then in um, doling out contracts. And you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It might just be more of the the political side of the spectrum of Oh, it's huge on the political side. Just diplomacy instead of hands-on control of how money is moved and spent. How many conversations have you had since 2014 where people talk about the uh, the space agreements? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, I, I've got to believe you've had sure many enough. of them where people say, well, what about the agreements? Well, the United States has not signed it or this country has not signed it. And we've had on... Uh, We've had on Jan Werner. We've had on Sal Masami from this South African space agency. We've had on, oh, I could see his picture now from uh, who ran the U.S. space agency. We've had multiple people on. And yeah, there's a lot of political uh, uh, movement that makes it extremely difficult to create this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, it's okay. It's a, it's a question. So how about this next one? Creating value from satellites. Yes. So I've mentioned a little bit about the, the satellite industry and commercial companies achieving great things by getting satellites in space uh, when there was mm-hmm. no ecosystem for supply chains. You couldn't just go get cogs items to go buy your components off from a catalog years ago uh, to actually create a satellite was a big deal. Um, And then we had this thought of um, small satellites. Uh, There was a whole popularity of small satellites that are called CubeSats that are 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter. And all of these startups that that popped up saying, we're going to build CubeSats and this is going to be amazing. And everybody said, we're going to build constellations and they're going to have so much value. And they didn't stop to say, okay, but what is the real capability of these uh, beyond yes. the science project? And there's a whole group of colleges that send CubeSats up. I think it's, it's, I forget the name of it. It's got a cute name like CougarSat or something like that. But they, they all build these satellites and, and it's great. All, all I picture is little ears on them like Cougars. I forget the, it's a, I forget the name of it, but the, 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 these colleges, they get the students to build CubeSats and they fly something to space and that's phenomenal. And our Center for Advancement of Science in Space, CASIS on the International Space Station, um, they shoot them out the window of the ISS and they end up in orbit and everybody cheers and yay for science. But um, what is the value then of that STEM student, for example, that does that and then says, I'm going to create a company and it's going to be worth a billion dollars. Well, you have to think about the capability of what you're starting with. And a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter CubeSat is very different than what we're building, which is um, a very advanced (laughs) satellite that's got um, uh, like in in, the so much power to power all of these instruments and get all of this data back, a CubeSat can't do a whole lot is the point. And so Mm -hmm. then you have um, venture folks that listen to these stories and they think it's so exciting and cool because it's space and they throw their money in 
And it's been problematic because they're putting money into things that are not going to create a lot of value. And so, but it's hard to explain that when there was a period where anybody talking about space uh, with an investor and, and Morgan Stanley saying it's going to be a trillion dollar business by 2030, uh, they said, okay, here's my money. I'm just going to throw money at space. You know, this is the whole thing. And so they really got away from asking hard questions about business models and and when will the pro forma show uh, a return on investment and could a company produce value with a single satellite? Could they produce a unit profitable satellite? Uh, well, we did, mm -hmm. but I don't know of anybody else that has, and we can't wait to prove that out when we fly. But we have not seen other companies doing this. It was really a high CapEx and um, excitement about really science projects. And that has slowed down yes. the industry. Uh, to a certain degree, even some that I look at, I had one that I, they did a model and I felt like it was looking at a view. Do you remember the Viewmaster viewer? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Viewmaster viewer. Yes. Model of a Viewmaster <laughs> viewer and we're going to go do space domain awareness. And I thought, yeah, I don't think you are, but okay, you know, good for you. You got some people convinced that you could do that. So um, there's not a lot of understanding uh, from the investment side of what, what is it that's being built? What are its capabilities and why is it transformational? And every investor should be asking that. And then show me what the dollar, dollar value like likelihood is. And that's a problem too, because we had companies throwing out huge numbers uh, that they will just not achieve. And this is why we entered into that whole SPAC era. I was just going to say yeah. SPACs. That was, I, I was holding back and I said, oh my God, what she's talking yeah. about SPACs. Yes. But we also, we, we had challenges with hydroponics, hydroponics place uh, facilities are failing all over the place right. where we had, uh, because it's not a business model. We have a farm, Yeah, you know, the, growing it in a city doesn't make it better <laughs> or, more, or more profitable. You know, you, you, you don't have to transport it from the farm yeah. to the city. So yes. So the case. Everything you're outlining, though, becomes degradates or degradates. Is that Great. the right word? It pulls from the value of the possibilities of the beyond Earth well, ecosystem. This is a problem. Yeah, it's shadow. There's this shadow that's been cast over the industry, and the highest capability companies just have to keep fighting, like mine, to show the um, where we're where all this is going next is, I mean, we even like where it goes next is exciting, but where it goes first is exciting. So we, you know, we actually have to pay attention to um, what these capabilities can do in the future, but what they can do right out of the starting gate in our case. Okay. So you, I mean, you know, I'm so, going to ask yeah. first out of the starting yeah. gate. Yeah. And next. First out of the what starting is gate is um, the, the, Utility of satellites today has been a single sensor collecting a single type of data. Our satellite is effectively eight satellites built into one. So it's eight different sensors, 
each sensor with its own proprietary stream of data that we will collect. And then on top of that, because of the power that we have, we can combine those that data in layers. It'll be the first ever on-orbit data fusion that occurs because... So the data fusion is happening not no, on the ground? No, it's happening in space because every instrument okay. at the same can point at the same object at the same point in time for all on data collection of all the instruments. So what I what I meant you're 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 still you're still collecting streams. Yes. But then what you're doing is integrating them up there, but you're still creating streams because you do want the selective that's streams. That's right. That's right. You want it selectively, you want it together, and then what you want to do is process it. So we have processing on board. Obviously we need to have um and, and this hasn't happened with satellites today is compute capability and processing commercial satellites again I'm talking about yeah. where you can store all of this data and then have processing on board satellites today are pretty dumb they operate in a loop you kind of set it and forget it it's not interacting with the ground you can't change its course you can't upload software to change uh, its what it does but with ours you can you can always just like with your with your uh, I don't know if you ever had navigation in your car when you had to put seven or eight CDs into the car to update the nav system. Yeah, that was. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You, you, you went out and you had to grab the next one because you're going into the right. next territory. Right. Now, now yes. in a Tesla, you're just uploading the latest software and all the new features and it's just then updated. Like the satellite can just be updated. So that's now, now, next gen. It's, it's very it's next gen compared to what happens today. It's it's not been done. But two questions then. One, and I keep on giving you two, I don't like to ask two, but one is the data stream, doesn't it come back to your structure, your ground station? Uh, they come HQ? down to they come down to the ground stations. Right, they come down to ground station. So there is a single point of contact, even though you have a fusion happening, it's still coming to, or multiple streams happening, you still come down to a single point. So that was the first one. The second is, now I, because I said it out loud like that, uh, can't change the course, can't create that. Oh, it'll come to me. Okay, so you're still creating a single source uh, and then you're doing the distribution on earth to all the user base through a, the aggregate that pushes it up oh it was the energy you you pointed out maybe three times already you keep on talking about the mm -hmm. energy so what makes your energy um capabilities so different than everybody else's yeah I, this is not a i know we're not doing a product explanation here but i'm uh i'm really trying to figure out why you would bring it up multiple times um i can say we have 10 times the power of any satellite that's a small satellite today because we have designed our own solar deployment system and so solar is how you're going to collect the power right from the okay yeah I, I, I was just, I was wondering if there was a little bit of nuclear going oh, come out no, of it. Oh, no, no, so. nuclear. We, we have this uh, phenomenon. We did start we there. Did. So. We did. Because the nuclear, I was just with this nuclear people, and they can't wait for us to, to in the future, have an 
an X craft, our satellite is called the X craft, have it go deeper into space with nuclear, which, you know, it's our, our satellite is designed like the iPhone. So different components, we can switch them out. And in the future, we could do a nuclear mission, no doubt. So yeah, uh, we, we've got nuclear subs. Mm-hmm. We've got nuclear on large. So it'll eventually now we've got these. They're not called. Oh, they're not called micro nuclear reactors. Is a sort of small term for the smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enca- yes. So we do have that capability. But so you're just you're you just have a better. You've created a better mousetrap using your mouse. Um, Mouse or not, whatever you call it. Uh, you have a better solar deployment system that has a higher power um, f power absorption rate that allows you to be able to supply yeah, what you're doing. Most That's of the you- companies today are buying their the bus itself, which is the main of the satellite yep. that carries your payloads. They're buying that from other companies and they're spending a lot of money for those. And it's, um, I don't want to call it a commodity because that sounds like like you could buy it at the grocery store, but it is something that they can buy. Uh, and because they buy them from someone else and they haven't uniquely engineered them, they're limited on what they do. Mm-hmm. So we did not start with, we're just going to buy somebody else's bus. We engineered it ourselves. And so this has been a long haul effort to build it specific for these multiple capabilities, multiple modalities. Um, But other satellites are designed for one or two instruments to be on board and they can't support more than that because they don't have the power and they as well, they don't have any fuel typically there's no propulsion and we've so you have to think about a lot of different things with a business and in our case we think about how long is that satellite flying how much did we have to invest to get it to fly and then what is what will it return in in value per year for financially to have a return on the asset and, yeah the yeah, numbers and must in our work case uh it's it returns its value the first year and generates a profit. So that hasn't been done before because they're thinking about a single customer, a single instrument. When you have eight satellites into one, you're now, you know, um, orders of magnitude more capable. Yeah, it's, I'm going to use a bad analogy, but if you buy one coffee cup from a company, it's going to cost you $10 plus $6 in freight. You buy four coffee cups now you package them up and you've got, you sell it for $30. Freight is still not going to be much more, but you've made a lot more yeah, profit. Yeah. That's a bad analogy, yeah. but uh, that's the one that comes to mind is I, you, someone tries to sell a coffee cup. It's not worth it. Sell them four and now they spend $30 instead of $10. Now you've got your profit, your margin. Well, made in there. right. And I, I live in the land of Microsoft and Amazon here in Seattle and we have Oh, I didn't know you were in Seattle. I probably should. I probably have you in Seattle. I had to use Austin, Texas. Why do I have us use Austin? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've not been in uh, Austin, but. There must have been. Well, you and I already looked at the data before on our phone and you're 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 not even the person you are 17 years ago. So, yes, I had found Austin, Texas, and that's how I had put you into our database. So I had not thought you were Seattle. We we have. Uh, I think we have five people working with Project Luna in Seattle alone. 
so well, that's, I would have I would have remembered on Amazon that. and Microsoft, uh, particularly with Microsoft, everyone would remember that um, when bundling occurred and Microsoft was able to bundle its Excel yeah. and Word and all these um, uh, software into one package, that became the new standard. So this is effectively what we're doing on a satellite is the bundling of multiple capabilities. I had a fa fascinating uh, question from somebody saying, gosh, well, doesn't that mean that your individual instruments are going to be degraded because you bundled them? And it's almost to me like saying, well, when you use uh, Microsoft, does, does it mean that you can't cut and paste because your, your package includes Excel? You know, like, how does that, I mean, I do not understand why people think this way, but some people do. They think that, oh, there must be some trade-off by having multiple instruments on the satellite, but not in the way we've designed it, not in the way we've powered it. No, there's a, it does, and it's a multiplicative operation. You, you, you're, you're still sending it up. So there's a cost to send it up. There's a cost to maintain it. You're putting eight satellites in one, in one structure. That's a, that's a value yeah. add. It makes all, all the sense in the world. And now it's not the, I, I wouldn't say it's the data fusion part. That's a great ad that you could say that it's created and aggregated, or maybe you have a better reason for it. I think more is that you can create eight streams of value that can be sliced, diced. And I feel like the, uh, what was the credit default swaps, uh, this, where they did the slice and dice and you can give data in all different mm -hmm. forms. It, what's the reason for doing it up there versus doing it on the ground? The action, act, well, the, <laughs> there's some proprietary reasons I can't really talk about, but let's, let's just say if you're driving the collection of the most valuable data for a customer, um, and then you're downloading that and you're processing it to get an insight back, this is where space is going next, where that satellite is providing the answer to the ground instead of a bunch of files that you still have to go drill down into and process, et cetera. Um, it costs money to download data from space. We're still in the dark ages uh, today in how we download data because the satellite has to fly over the ground state. So, so you can get rid of you can get rid of bad data or unusable you can filter data. It, yeah. You could, yeah, that's uh, filters a better word, but you're filtering out the data and sending what's necessary instead of uh, a just a steady right. stream of mm -hmm. content. So when you when you okay. get rid of the excess and you're only downloading what is valuable, then there's a, a high level of increased efficiency and lower cost. Yeah, you're. I mean, that's it just makes a ton of sense. You're bringing together all the data, then you're saying, what do we want from that data? So whatever terabytes or whatever size you're getting, now you're saying, okay, we collected all of this, but we don't need to use it. We only need this. Mm -hmm. And that's all we're going to transmit. Yeah. That's right. Why is it expensive if in fact you have all, I mean, does it use more power? Is that why you call the term expensive? Well, so the reason we're still in the dark ages today is that you have to fly over a ground station. It's almost like dial-up modem is the age mm -hmm. we're still in where you're going to have to dial up and connect to a satellite and download data. And if uh, until we have 
um, other ways of of inter satellite links and linking to other um, uh, bring that data down to the ground in a more ubiquitous way. It's it's going to take uh, time and money to get data back. Um, so we haven't had this transformation. We might, we given with our our partners, Microsoft. They just announced with um, Project Kuiper optical capabilities of downloading massive amounts of data using optical terminals. So we may have this big transformation that occurs in the next uh, two years even um, with the quantity of data we can bring back. All of it is good. But All the, of it the, is the, good. The, the bigger, you've got a few things. You've got a satellite that's going around the Earth, so you have to get it every time it comes around. And if you have a large enough data set, you it's you might have to wait two or three iterations to be able to secure it all if it's a tremendous amount of data. But now you're saying, we're just going to send you down this file. This is what you asked for. This is what you need. You're going to get it in one shot. You have a timing, uh, timing capability of being able to deliver it to the customer faster because now you don't have to wait for multiple iterations and it could be in their hands if t if time means it makes a difference. It could be in their hands in one second versus 50 seconds. And that's also a value because you're getting re more real-time data that's more appropriate. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you think about how we use geospatial data today, all of us are interacting with space. We all use our cell phones. We are looking at that blue dot when we're navigating from point A to point B and finding out the best route, um, that's in real time. So what happens when we have real time answers about what's happening on the earth? Oh, I mean, we feel we have real time <clears throat> because Google and everybody else are creating arcs yes. of data. And so they're, it's not a complete no. real time. I mean, it would be, imagine I go to the internet right now and I say, tell me about Lisa Rich. It is not scouring every single node that it's available and then coming back with data. It's looking at arcs about you and giving me whatever it can interpret. So it, we, we're still in an age or yeah. a time where I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if it'll ever be possible to be able to do a complete search and uh, only two percent of the data is public i think that's the some type of number like that meaning uh, i have data on my computer that's not readily available you have data on your computer that's not readily available companies have data on their computers that are not available so when you're searching the internet or you're searching you're only getting the data that's put out there in the uh the ecosystem but it's not what resides on corporations and individuals um Hard drives. Mm -hmm. No, I. You're right. So, uh, although it's highly useful, what, that two percent get to you. Oh, oh no, I'm I'm not I'm not discounting it. But you had said about the blue dot in real time, and we're using arcs to be able to find where somebody is because it would be way mm -hmm. too expensive, too time 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 consuming, to have to. I mean, did the map change since yesterday? Did the map change from the day before? That's where Waze was so amazing, is it gave you a little bit more of uh, the information. But I mean, how much has changed in our roads? I mean, I live in a community. The roads around me have not changed much in years. So why would we want to have a new road picture taken every day to have more current data? 
and and different people would answer that question differently. <laughs> it depends on the use case scenario, but it wouldn't be for the same purposes of just using your your car to be able to transition <laughs> from where studying I am the to degradation where... of the asphalt. You know, I, I don't. I know, and, and I've I've worked in the road construction industry, and I'm all familiar with. I actually ran one one of my first jobs is I ran a rock quarry that supplied ninety six percent of all stone that went into New York City. So yes, I do understand. Uh, I, I ran a plant. We did about fifty million. So back then it was big. So I infinite streams. So we're we're talking about infinite streams. What are the infinite streams? Right. Well, the the applications of um Space data are going to just keep expanding over time, but um, what it's been used for, as you're pointing out, with um, traffic and what and uh, weather, people want to learn about that. Um, those are those those initial applications. But when we start having um, a satellite that's got a long lifetime, because uh, it's got propulsion to last a long lifetime, multiple at least you know five to ten years. Uh, versus one to three, and then they die and uh, deorbit. Um, that's typical of satellites today. Uh, and you have that daily feed of, of data. Then what can we do to solve uh, and look at the ground and have knowledge that would solve issues like food scarcity, um, climate monitoring, methane leaks um, over uh, oil wells or or you know sources of methane, how we can cap that, um, disaster mitigation, wars and conflict zones that we'll have more information about, um, uh, oil gas uh, issues that we can see from the the natural environment. Um, we can we can glean so much knowledge from this for science. Uh, we could look at soil coastline erosion. Um, uh, what's happening with, uh, I'm just throwing a lot of things out here. Like, no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm writing them all down as you know, I'm, like, I'm taking um, notes. So we could see, um, huge container ships that are leading to the soil erosion and increased traffic on the oceans and maritime issues like illegal dumping, illegal trade, human trafficking, the ethical or unethical treatment of workers. How long are the laborers on the field, for example, or land remediation. We can see our uh, replantings being done of palm oil uh, or the palm industry, for, for example. Um, that's always a concern. Or these supply chains that are um, so under duress, how do we find um, better ways of managing them? I mean, there's so many questions we can answer with the data we bring back. It's really limitless. And one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this industry is, is all of the unique things that people that I meet that say, could you do this? Could you do that? And the answer typically is, yes, we can. And wow, I didn't even realize there was a need. Um, like somebody said, I did a talk with a land trust and they were talking about the erosion of the coastlines. And they said, can you see whales and the container ships and like whales that are mm -hmm container ships that are entering the strike zones for whales. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so there's this omniscient view from space and those applications, not just of sight and optical, but uh, temp 
the temperature and measurements that we can take. Um, it's extraordinary. And these are just kind of the first. So you, you took it all, you took it all on the positive. So I want to, what about the implications of having all of this, being able to see someone's oh, house, being able to see the or their license? No, I, I'm I'm using uh, I, I I work with Maersk for about four mm -hmm. or five years in the shipping line, so I'm very familiar with some of the applications. I'm just I'm saying we're getting just just like the access where people hacking of your computer systems. We all have these computer systems. We have bank accounts that are online. We're using our mobile phone to be able to access them and. You can't go far long without hearing about people who've had their phone hacked, their computer hacked, their data hacked, their life is in ruin. And there's probably good, I mean, the numbers, I do not know them. I'm just using an example. You gave a lot of the positive. Do you sit back at all, just you, Lisa, and say, wow, this could also be X. Do you ever say that? And when you do say that, what do you say? Well, because we we have the data going to a data aggregator that's then pushing it out to uh, their customers and who are their customers and who is buying this. There are requirements that, of course, they have to have with where this data goes. So there has to be, the, I mean, there's always a red flag scenario. Um, you know, I was asked this question years ago, not to change the topic, but it's kind of fascinating of a company that did custom DNA strands. And somebody said, well, gosh, you know, what if somebody is creating bioweapons or some type of a weapon out of a DNA or, you know, uh, these data, these strands that they could create for biology. And the company had to have stop gaps and, and, um, really vet who the buyers were. And I think that's, that is what's happening in this industry is they have to know who the buyers are, but you know, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. I, the tra the transfer of data, once it leaves someone's hands, we never have been able to do that. Just like if you look up the shadow fleet and what's happening in Russia right now with the oil tankers meeting in Greece and the two ships meet and the Russian oil is transferred to a Greek ship and now it's Greek oil. So yeah. the provenance of things, um, you're kind of getting into that, I think. No, and I... it. Well, you went in that direction. I wasn't just thinking about that. I was just thinking about the ubiquitous and the opportunities that come from so much data and so much visibility and so much capability that I'm asking myself as you're talking about it, what does this mean? Not positive or negative, just what does this mean? And what jumped into my mind is when we were writing Paid to Think that I had sent to you, uh, I had an example in there uh, of terrorism. Oh my God, couldn't have it. It was not going to be in there. And I said, but I, I'm being, this is not a good or a bad thing, but terrorists tend to be pretty good planners. And the reason is they have to get it right the first time because they might be dying. And it didn't matter that the example that I was using was apropos to the situation to understand if plans always if they had a uh, an end, like your business would fail, 
and you made decisions based upon the fact that tomorrow there might not be another day, you make very different decisions. We all do. If, if, I, if you found out tomorrow you, you had cancer and you only had five months to live, you're going to make very different decisions. If you fa- got a phone call that someone in your family has died, you will make different decisions. It's not a bad or a good thing. It's just that how the world works. So when I'm hearing you talk about all these rich possibilities, which I think are amazing because Project Moonhot is about moving these things forward, we do get people who call us privately and they say, do you know what risk you have here? Do you know what you have to be looking at? We have the seventh largest law firm in the world who's been working with us for two years, Kirkland Ellis. They've been amazing. And they've been working on helping us to craft an ITAR EAR CFIUS program based upon the work we're working on. And that's because there is inherent risk in the work that anybody does beyond earth. So I'm asking you a similar question. When you go through these exercises of amazing things that will come out, do you also go through the exercises of, wow, with this, there could be? Because I don't think, I don't think that way, but let me tell you, the people call me absolutely. So I have a theory about this because I had invested in robotics and was very interested in robotics and everyone's afraid of robots taking over the world or some people are and i'm not and i'll tell you why um and this is just my you know how there's the turing test well i have the roomba test (laughs) (laughs) so they have to be able to do the the, roomba to be qualified as intelligent has been around for about 20 years Um, yeah Okay, so you're really talking about the Roomba cleaning the house. Yes. (laughs) I was thinking of uh, it. There's a a dance. Right. I I went to the dance because I love to dance. So I went to the dance, not to the robot. So while there's a Turing test, I call it the Roomba test. And um, so this is the the vacuum. You know, this Roomba. Yep. Now now I'm here. I'm I'm with you. Roomba has been around for... 20 years, I almost should look it up to see. I bet it's even older than that. And they make, oh gosh, crazy amounts of money selling these Roombas and we've bought them and they're wonderful. Um, But David, the second that Roomba can actually climb the stairs, maybe we've made an advancement. Maybe I'm scared. (laughs) Night, uh, Electrolux 1996. I watched the Boston Dynamics. Just so you know, 1996 was the, what I see. It's close to that. So we're talking how many years? Yeah, it's, it's quite a few years. Is that the one I'm looking robotics? Does it say here? I I just looked it up because that's an interesting question. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's still a dumb machine like our, it's like our washing machine. It, does not say, hey, by the way, give me the yeah, give me your dishes. That's right. So now if we also look at Boston Dynamics, how old is the Boston Dynamics robot? Well, they've actually gone through multiple owners because they haven't been able to create All that profitability. Right. So yet. when I watch those late I always watch the latest Boston Dynamics uh, video of the robot dancing and, and doing parkouring and things like that. And it's all very impressive, but you have to remember it's all taking place in pretty much a padded room that's full of... 1992. 1992. So um, 
to my point, it's 2024. Boston Dynamics is uh 1992 is 32 years old so they can't let it out of the padded room um now we do now this flip side of this i have been to the tesla factory i've seen the kuka robots and what they can oh, do yeah. and you are yep. experiencing the future when you go into a tesla factory but just to say that until roomba or boston dynamics get to the next level i am not worried i'm sleeping at night but you- you heard the you heard the Project Moonhot story, and I say to people, uh, I uh, the Jetsons were promised by the year sure. 2020, 2000. By 2000, we were supposed to have a robot in our home, taking walking our dog, buying our groceries, taking care of the kitchen, and we were supposed to have flying cars. That was 2020. That's 24 years ago. I woke up in a bed. I had sheets on it. I had them when I was a little boy. I'm a lot older than that. I went to, to use the toilet in the morning. Hey, same type of thing when I was a boy. No ray beams in my shower. And the microwave, and I've got to look this up. Do you know when the in microwave the was created? Or 70s. Oh, wave founded. I don't know if that's founded as a word. 1945, oh. the first patent for a microwave so- oven. And we still use a microwave. Right. And so when people talk about advances, yeah, we have a phone in our hand. It gives us capabilities, but we're not there yet. So... The question is not that the robots will take over. It's that the individual machines that robots control will change our life, meaning they could take jobs, they could take opportunities, no different than the conversation about artificial intelligence combined with robotics today. But yeah, I I don't sit around and I'm not afraid of our washing machine, nor our dryer, nor our refrigerator, nor our microwave. Mm -hmm. Not afraid. But so the question wasn't about fear. It was, there's a lot of data here. There's a lot of personal or potentially private can be used nefariously. So that was more my question. The larger challenges that we talk about in the space industry is the absconding of that data from a satellite. So that it gets into other hands. And and there's a lot of encryption and, and requirements for security to make sure that the data does go from the satellite to where it's expected to go. Um, so we, you know, we have a plan of where it's coming from and where it's going to and protections in place to make sure that So let's see, Infinite Streams we talked about. Now, every company is a mirth company, a space (laughs) company, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so this is my my last point uh, as we get heading to a close in our great conversation today, that I, I do a lot of discussion with Fortune 100 companies to share the story about our, our future opportunities of applying data from space and really saying, if you wave your magic wand, what is the data that your company would want that they can't acquire right now? And when companies start thinking about that and they say, gosh, um, if I could monitor my land, if I could monitor my workforce, if I could um, count, uh, you know, car counting is a popular with hedge funds and financial firms, but can we go way beyond what we're quantifying with a data we bring back from space? Would it be good and useful for me? 
And also, would I be able to now learn about my competitors? Well, yes, you could. So now this conversation transitions from a strategy typically of, well, how could this affect our R&D in, in the future to, oh, wow, this is now a financial discussion of what could we get uh, about our company and compare it to other companies. There's so much um, that will be learned in the data science field in the future. And I encourage any young person listening that's thinking about their career to be looking in the data sciences area because the talent that we need and the jobs are going to proliferate just like they did when the internet started and everybody was running around saying, who knows how to program HTML, you know, like this, you, you need, you're going to need a lot of talent in these areas and companies will be hiring for this. And it'll be very different than in the internet days when it was a question of, well, what percentage of your ad budget are you going to donate or, or like waste on this thing called the World Wide web instead of, oh my gosh, that's an industry that's going to go from five billion to fifty billion to five hundred billion dollars, and now be responsible for twenty-five percent of all GDP. That's the internet, like you know, like like. No, it's and I remember yeah. front page first program done on front page. I went to Dreamweaver, and with multiple sites, we we've got from Wix to customized. You, you went to the projectmoonhot.org uh, website and saw some of the work that's being done. It's just out of this world by some of the team members. So, yeah, it's uh, – but you focus primarily on the data side. Why do you think that – why did data become your point of entry? Well, it's easier to move um, – but what is it? Bytes or uh, – these are, these are little – Bytes and bits, bits, right? And um, these are the enablers of, uh, uh, as we saw, Salesforce transformed how we operate software from, you know, disks and what have you to just getting it digitally, (laughs) getting a subscription digitally. Um, There's a lot of power in uh, just delivering uh, data versus being involved with hardware um, that can slow you down. So, uh, we, we need both though. We do. we do need the hardware. Well, we had, we to, need build, the, we the had software. to build the satellite need... to get the data. So we did, did that part of it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, uh, we could also talk, we have a, a full initiative on, uh, transforming education around the world. And the construct is that Every classroom, doesn't matter what it is, we, we focus on STEM or STEAM, but every classroom should give us a little bit of space. Meaning, a professor who teaches psychology at a university, could they teach two or three days out of a full semester about Beyond Earth? What would they talk about? I don't know anything. Yeah, you do. Living in confined corners, living away from home, uh, the living in gravity, what it's like to live with a group of individuals, what's the transition, what is the overview effect, how does that impact you? Could you talk two or three days about that? Yeah. What if every classroom on Earth, instead of looking at beyond Earth as space, because it's just beyond Earth, what if every classroom, because our world is embedded with technologies from it, 
What if every classroom on earth just to give us a little bit of space? So we have a whole initiative on that. We've got people like Andy Aldrin, who we've spoken to for uh, quite some time. We have uh, Pierce, who is a former military person who wants to see the behavioral impact of the, the future of having positive opportunities for beyond Earth, uh, for, for the world. So we've got a, a variety of individuals who are looking at that. That might be of interest to you in terms of transforming how we look at even our educational system to fulfill what you just yeah, defined. Yeah, we really are excited about the um, different sectors we can impact with um, the different uses of our data. And um, I think... The idea, as we go back to this, every company is a space company. It it is like a question to to pose to everyone listening: like, how is your company preparing for our space future? Preparing to utilize the data that we bring back from space, and and if you weren't thinking about it, how how could you um, influence uh, the company to? make sure that they are a part of this future because it's like the internet. If you're not thinking about it now, you'll be left behind. Uh, as I like to say, the future is happening under our feet and you're, if it's not early, here's my quote. I'm going to share this with you. It's kind of hilarious, but yep. people have laughed, but, but it makes <laughs> it's not, it's, it's too early until it's too late. So if you're yeah. just not there and you're saying, gosh, it's just not, oh, it's going to be years. And you could easily think that because when you read about NASA and the Artemis mission and 2026 and things getting delayed, that's fine. That is going on to the longer term plan. But what's happening in the commercial satellite arena underneath our feet, it's going online like very soon. I mean, we're launching there, so, so I, I, I would, I would reframe it because the challenge is through my experiences around the world from Lithuania to Estonia, Latvia, talking about it, Macedonia, uh, living in Hong Kong and Asia is that there are so many speed bumps that individuals are kind of tired of the promise. However, what you're really focusing on is a a certain dynamic within the Beyond Earth ecosystem. And that is data capabilities with satellites that are presently available and have advanced to the point of multiple streams of value. So it's not, when we use the term space, I think what it does is it sometimes, it pushes a lot of people back. I, I, I see it all the time. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. But if talk about satellites and data and capabilities. Hey, you got a phone, right? You look at weather, right? You, you use your GPS, correct? Have you ever done this? Yeah, I have. That is all technology that comes from beyond Earth. That's all space or satellite technology. I think that conversation fragmented into that one category is an even more powerful uh, path to less resistance. Well, it's true. Satellites are something people know about, that there are telecommunication yep. satellites. Um, I love to... Uh, bring out an app on my phone that's called Satellite Pointer. It's a free app and you point it at the window and it shows you all the big uh, cable satellites that are flying above our heads. They're little marching like soldiers all in a line. And you can see, oh, there's AMC, there's IntelSat, there's UtelSat. You, it labels all of them. And so if you ever feel like you're not 
connected to space, and of course, this is one of the the proven industries in space is television. You can see right. that, and I show that to people, and they say, "Wow, I had no idea." And this is part of the problem. And, and that's my point. It's something they could connect to because it it is their their communication system. It is their their um, their their mm-hmm. entertainment. And now, oh, oh, okay, that's very different than people going to the International Space Station. Yeah, to do it's an really tactile when you start giving examples and showing them. You know, you were on a plane today. You listened to in-flight Wi-Fi that was coming from a satellite. Oh, I did interact with space today. You know, um, yeah. Well, you you watched the second video of the two. I'm assuming the one that has the hand-drawn diagram for Project Moonhot, and the first thing it starts off with is that our lives are basically space-related to inventions that came from beyond Earth. I mean, cloud computing, this entire conversation would not exist if not for cloud computing, which came about because we needed to be able to do computing on the international space, or the um, de-icing, or baby food, or the elliptical, or the, so what we're similar in that is we're saying, yeah, our lives are embedded in it. But it's it's not an easy sell. It's no, not easy you're sell. always having to to just frame it so it's digestible. Sometimes uh, it's unfortunate, but part of the challenge is that we cannot see what is flying above our head. There, what is it, six thousand seven hundred satellites that are active today? Something like that. We're going to yeah, it's a crazy 40, number, 000, and, and so people don't uh, like it's hard to grasp uh what about that activity well today on i was on a call and the first words out of this person's mouth yeah but all the space debris it's all not going to survive no yeah so there's and a lot of space in space and a lot of a lot of another a, a whole nother conversation uh so so this was fabulous lisa and i truly, truly, truly appreciate you coming and helping and uh, learned a lot, took 17 pages of notes. So that's fabulous. Appreciate it uh, tremendously that you were here for us and hopefully you'll become more involved in Project Moon Hat. So I want to thank you for your time. Uh, for those of you who took time out of your day to listen to this podcast, listen in, we appreciate it. We do hope that you too learn something that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Now, Project Moon Hot Foundation is where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to turn those innovations and paradigm-shifting thinking from the endeavor back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Once again, I didn't say it in the beginning, if you go to our website, top right-hand corner, you can make a donation. We are a 501c3, but we have individuals helping us the world over, and we hope that everybody who's listening in decides to make that little click or to email us and say you would like to help participate because we have people from lawyers to physicians to data scientists, you name it. The gamut of the people who are helping us is pretty extensive. So uh, Lisa, once again, you're amazing. Uh, when's What's the single best way to get a hold of you? To yeah, reach out I to think you? LinkedIn is, is a great way. Um, it's just Lisa Rich is, um, I, there are a lot of Lisa Riches, so you want to Yes, I was going to say, you and what, 400,000 of our company, them? Is, uh... Uh, look for Lisa Rich at Explore, which is spelled X-P-L-O-R-E, and uh, you'll find me. Um, it's good to write a note of 
you know, why you're getting in touch. Um, I have a lot of public events, so um, I want to make sure and, and always uh, respond uh, as I can. Uh, but that's a good place to reach me. And, and I've got a good feed there as well. Explore.com has a feed about our activities. Um, if there's anyone in the Seattle area, I'm not sure when you're posting this, David. Um, is it this week or? No, no, because we just did Ken last week. We've got yours, so it'll be a few weeks oh, okay. out before it'll okay. be posted. I don't uh, have any upcoming things other than something in March. We're getting into the Redmond Historical Society because of a whole other topic of creating the Redmond Space District here, which is because more satellites than anywhere in the world are produced in Redmond, Washington. So that'll have to be a future. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's the a factoid. Fact yeah. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much for the time and great okay. conversation. I appreciate it and look forward to uh, hearing from your audience and when future conversations with you. And, and for all of you out there, love to connect with you also. It's david at moonhut.org. You can reach us at Twitter at, at Project Moonhut, myself at Goldsmith. There's LinkedIn, there's Facebook, there's Instagram. You can reach out to us in a variety of different ways. And do check out, again, the website, projectmoonhut.org. Take a look at the 40-year plan. Take a look at the new Project Moonhut classification system. Take a look at the work that we're involved in, and you'll see there's tons there besides two videos that go over some of the introductory to what the work we're working on. So that said, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.